This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. This is Dave Iverson. In many ways, dyskinesia seems like the opposite of Parkinson's disease. Instead of moving slowly or not being able to move at all, dyskinesia represents uncontrollable, involuntary movement. So why would someone with Parkinson's so often experience it? The answer in part lies with L-DOPA, the standard dopamine replacement medication people take for Parkinson's. Dyskinesia is a frequent complication of treatment with a dopamine compound. It tends to occur later in the disease and uh, tends to be associated with things like increased doses as well as uh, the progression of the disease itself. Dr. Christopher Bishop is a leading dyskinesia researcher based at the State University of New York in Binghamton. He says, though it's not the only factor, the likelihood of someone with Parkinson's experiencing dyskinesia increases the longer someone takes dopamine replacement drugs. Within about five years, maybe 40 to 50 percent will experience dyskinesias. And by year 10, that increases to 80 or 90 percent. But a lot of it still has to do with the progression of their disease, the age at which they were diagnosed, as well as, to an extent, the dose of L-DOPA they're taking. People with young-onset Parkinson's are particularly vulnerable to dyskinesia. That's in part because they wind up taking L-DOPA drugs for longer periods of time. But Bishop says it's also because a younger person's brain is more plastic. In general, neuroplasticity is a good thing. But there are two sides to neuroplasticity in the brain. I mean, our brain has this amazing capacity to compensate for insult and injury, but there's a tipping point. And with dyskinesia especially, we believe that some of that positive neuroplasticity shifts over to aberrant neuroplasticity so that when we begin to supply the brain with exogenous compounds, dopamine agonists, and especially L-DOPA, then the response shifts from improving poor movements to producing hyperkinetic movements like dyskinesia. That hyperactivity happens because someone with Parkinson's not only has fewer dopamine neurons over time, the neurons they have don't function as well, including how well those neurons process dopamine replacement drugs and that in turn seems to trigger other brain systems to get involved. So we shift from a largely dopaminergic process to something that is probably a hybrid of multiple brain systems. Those other systems include neurochemicals like serotonin and glutamate, which is why a drug called amantadine can be an effective treatment for dyskinesia. Amantadine was originally developed as an antiviral drug to fight influenza, but it also blocks the glutamate activity in the brain that triggers hyperkinetic movement. But amantadine doesn't work for everyone, and its side effects can be problematic. In other efforts to curb dyskinesia, like adjusting medications or delivering drugs through a patch or gel form, also have limitations. That's why Bishop and other researchers are intrigued with how to harness those other neurochemical systems that become engaged in the later stages of Parkinson's. Bishop is particularly intrigued with what could be done with serotonin. It provides us with some novel targets. If the serotonin neurons are contributing significantly to L-DOPA's actions, both positive and 
the dyskinesia that results from chronic treatment with L-DOPA, then by targeting the activity of serotonin neurons, by targeting the receptors that modify serotonin signaling, we can actually reduce L-DOPA's dyskinetic effects and maintain the efficacy of L-DOPA at the same time. And that's really a gold standard goal for folks in the dyskinesia research area. Bishop's lab is researching how to inhibit the impact of the serotonin system and has already found that in preclinical models, drugs called serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, drugs that are already approved to treat depression and anxiety, appear to have an effect on limiting dyskinesia as well. We are finding that these same compounds that work for depression actually also reduce dyskinesia. And it was a little bit of a surprise to us at first to see such significant effects in our preclinical models. That's exciting because it means drugs that are already on the market can potentially be used to treat dyskinesia and signals that this line of research can get us closer to understanding the deeper mysteries of the brain. And for us, this is a way not only to identify and repurpose drugs that are FDA approved, but it also allows us to delve deeper into the ways in which these SSRIs are working because I believe there's important knowledge to be gained from studying a compound with particular actions within the brain that may even get us closer to understanding how dyskinesia develops. To learn more about dyskinesia and the latest developments in dyskinesia research, join us for our next Third Thursday webinar on January 21st. To register, visit michaeljfox.org slash webinars. I'm Dave Iverson. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.